Good evening. We are continuing in our series, Defending the Faith, uh, looking at difficult questions that challenge what we believe. I wrote a um, brief outline so you can follow the points that I'm going to be going through. Today we're going to be taking up the problem of evil. Um, we'll, we'll outline what exactly is the problem of evil. We'll talk about God's inscrutability, his, uh, his um, uh, just otherness, our inability to understand all that God says and does. We'll look at theodicies, which are specific reasons why God may allow evil in the world. Uh, we'll look at some specific examples of theodicies, and then uh, we'll go to what is always for the Christian, the answer, how the gospel fits into the problem of evil. So if you were to ask a philosopher or a theologian about the problem of evil, it's a fairly well-defined idea. Something would come up in their mind. The question would be raised, how is it that a good God can exist with so much evil and suffering in the world? The question can be traced back to at least the 4th century B.C. And since then, brilliant men and women have pondered and debated the question, and who knows how many thousands of pages have been written in trying to resolve it. Many have written that the problem of evil is the main accusation against uh, faith in God. It's not merely an academic endeavor. Um, everyone is affected by pain, sickness, what seems to be unfair circumstances, death, and they're often moved to ask why. Why does God allow this? It's a personal issue. We live in a world where today, right now, millions of people are in slavery. Children are subject to starvation, neglect, and abuse. Corrupt governments routinely imprison and torture. Natural disasters affect entire countries, and people are afflicted with horrible disease. With all this evil as a backdrop, the argument against the existence of God is that God cannot be all-powerful and all-good. Either he is not powerful enough to stop all this suffering, or he's not good and loving enough to care. So uh, you'll see up on the board, I've, I've written um, a, a common way that this problem of evil of evil would be addressed. An all-powerful good God would stop evil. Evil exists. And if those two premises are both true, then the third statement naturally follows. Therefore, God does not. Now, to get started, we need to be clear on the terms that we're going to use the way we define the issue and how we use the terms are going to be crucial in answering the question of evil. Scripture agrees with the view of God that he is both all-powerful and perfectly good. As to his power, God has complete control 
of everything that causes us suffering. Whether it's natural evil, and that would be evil like disease or natural disaster, or moral evil, which is caused by the actions of people. And I want to emphasize the words complete control and over everything. I want to go over just a few examples so that we can see God's absolute authority over his creation. As to natural evil, evil, every detail of creation is subject to God's design. In Exodus 4, Moses is is telling God, I can't be your spokesman. I am slow of speech. I'm not eloquent. And God responds to him. Who has made God's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Later, Moses' sister Miriam complains against Moses' leadership, and God afflicts her with leprosy and then restores her. During the plagues of Egypt, God exercises control over animals, weather, natural light, health, and death. And he exercises control in ways that bring immense suffering to the people of Egypt. In Matthew 10, Jesus says that not a single insignificant bird falls to the ground apart from God. God is intimately involved and has complete control over every aspect of creation. As to moral evil, God exercises total authority over evil men. This is what um, the Lord says in Jeremiah chapter 27, uh, verses 5 and 6. By my great power and outstretched arm, I made the earth and the men and beasts on the face of it, and I give it to whom I please. So now I have given... I have placed all these lands under the authority of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This Nebuchadnezzar would go on to destroy God's temple in Jerusalem and subject God's people uh, to slavery. And God calls him my servant. Likewise, in Isaiah 10, God refers to the nation of Assyria as the rod of his anger against rebellious Israel. He is going to use Assyria as the tool to punish Israel. And yet, after Assyria plunders Israel, God says he will punish the king of Assyria for his actions and his arrogance in thinking that it was by his own might that he conquered Israel. God asks the rhetorical question at verse 15 of Isaiah 10, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? In the Genesis account of Joseph, his brothers sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, where he is falsely accused and goes to prison. Through extraordinary circumstances, Joseph rises to power in Egypt and saves his family from a lengthy famine. On reuniting with his brothers after many years, he tells them, you meant evil against me, 
but God meant it for good. In other words, God ordained the wicked actions of those brothers, even where their intention was to destroy their brother, and God's intention was to save Joseph and them. To avoid any confusion, that that Scripture is saying that somehow God jumped in at the last minute and scrambled to to make it right uh, over the actions of the brothers, Joseph makes clear when when he says in Genesis 45, 8, it was not you who sent me here, meaning to Egypt, but God. Finally, in Acts 2.23, Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost, he proclaims Jesus, and he says, This Jesus, deliver it up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In short, God does all that he desires to do. All that he has sovereignly planned comes to pass. The evil of men is part of his sovereign plan. He controls it. He uses it for his purposes. And he will ultimately punish it. God's control over all evil can make us uneasy at first. It's a hard concept to kind of allow to sink in. But how would we feel if the opposite were true? That God was a distant observer of natural and moral evil or powerless to use it as he desires? If God did not have complete control over everything he created, what comfort and hope could we rightfully expect from the promises of Romans 8.28 that God is working all things for the good of his people, for those called according to his purpose. So God is all-powerful. And when we look at the way um, that the problem of evil is expressed, an all-powerful God, Scripture agrees, and we agree that it is power completely over everything, including natural and uh, moral evil that bring us pain and suffering. We also see that Scripture declares God to be perfectly good. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him, him being Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The Bible uses light to stand for goodness, truth, purity. And here... um, First John is telling us that in God, he is light, and there is not a hint or taint of darkness in him at all. Jesus says in Mark 10, 18, no one is good but God alone. So that when we consider goodness, it's not even right to ascribe that term to anyone but God. He is both completely powerful and perfectly good. 
And it, it's very important as, as we consider the problem of evil, as I said, that, that we really affirm that God is all-powerful and perfectly good. Uh, as I will mention later, there are attempts to answer the problem of evil that have a wrong, unbiblical view of God, and so they're not very helpful. So once, now that we've kind of uh, looked at, at the terms that we're going to use, and we look at the problem of evil, why didn't our good God, who exercises complete control over all evil, create a world where, where evil doesn't exist, where it wasn't allowed to enter in, where not even a hint of it would taint God's creation? Why wouldn't God do what seems right to us? And the first answer is that we are not God and cannot fully understand Him. We simply do not always know why God acts as He does. So we declare the first premise of, of the problem, as I've stated here, to be false. The premise being that an all-powerful, good God would stop all evil. We have to say that's false because we don't know why God has allowed evil. This response is based on God's inscrutability. So to scrutinize means to examine closely. To say that God is inscrutable means we are simply unable to understand and interpret all that God does. The idea is found in Romans 11, 33, and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Similar statement from Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in 1 Corinthians 2.16, Paul says, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? These verses tell us that it's pointless to consider, why didn't God do it this way? But Scripture goes further. It not only sets forth that we cannot understand God and why He acts as He does, but that God will not be subjected to our questioning. Isaiah 45 says this, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? And that verse that I read, verse 7, about uh, I make well-being and create calamity, King James uh, translates that, I make peace and create evil. In the book of Job, 
horrific troubles befall Job. Through a combination of moral and natural evils, Job loses his family, his possessions, and his health. Job refuses to curse God, and his friends arrive to mourn with him and then give a reason for the tragedies that have occurred. Job rejects their explanations. He wants an audience with God. He desires to hear from God the reason for these things occurring to him. Finally, uh, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. God never reveals to, to Job why he suffered. Instead, God speaks of the wonders of the created world, things beyond Job's understanding. A humbled Job responds, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When confronted by the almighty God and all that God created and is sustaining, things beyond Job's comprehension, Job has no further desire to even be given a reason. If we agree with Scripture that God is completely good, not a trace of darkness in his nature, then in every way that he acts, it must be good, even when we don't understand. Still, it may seem initially unsatisfying to answer the problem of evil by first pointing to God's inscrutability. Maybe you're in a discussion and you feel, to, you feel a blow to your pride as if you're losing a, a debate. Or you feel like you, you need to, to defend God and uphold His honor. Or maybe someone is going through a difficult trial and out of compassion you want to point to some specific good that God is doing in the midst of their suffering. I would just urge you not to be pressured into giving an answer that God doesn't provide. Let me give you three thoughts on why you shouldn't presume to defend God where you don't see an answer in His Word. First is, it's just a really bad idea to substitute the wisdom of man for the wisdom of God. Job's friends spent chapter after chapter giving Job God's supposed reasons for all the evil he was facing. In their presumption, they believed they were defending God. Yet in chapter 42, God says that his anger burned against them, for they had not spoken of him what was right. Also, if you look at the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, it has much to say about God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. Paul points out that ultimately, Our thoughts are futile apart from God. Don't grasp to give someone a hope that is ultimately a false hope. Second thing to consider, most unbelievers will recognize that every worldview has unanswered ultimate questions. Here is astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said during a recent CNN interview, It's natural that astrophysicists ask big questions. How did the universe begin? Are we alone? 
Are we in a multiverse? Are we in a simulation? How will it all end? You can't just say yes or no. Such questions require more care and feeding, and sometimes they require us to say that we just don't know. Unbelievers will always have questions because they remove God from their consideration. And we will always have questions because we cannot fully understand Him. Third thing, by talking about God's inscrutability, the Bible is merely pointing out that the problem of evil as stated, does not logically flow. How can we possibly know what God would do? Our understanding is so small compared to God's. We only need to consider um, situations between, between parents and their young children. The infant getting a painful shot, the toddler being punished for chasing a ball into a street. They have no ability to see the good achieved in that suffering. We filter those situations with a far greater wisdom than our children possess. How much wider is the gulf in understanding between the eternal, almighty God and us? Although we don't know why God chose to create a world with no evil, to do it a different way, uh, Scripture does give us reasons why God allows specific instances of evil. A reason why God may allow evil in the world is known as a theodicy. The word means justification or vindication of God. But not all theodicies are helpful in that some have no support in Scripture, as I mentioned earlier. And I'll give you just one quick example. Open, the, uh, open theism this is an idea that God sets up laws of nature, gives people choice, puts them all in motion, and then sits back. And God is flexible about the future, um, aware of a number of possibilities based on the choices that are made. This is not the intentional, direct, detailed involvement of the all-powerful God that I described earlier from Scripture. But here are three fairly commonly cited theodicies. The soul-building theodicy is one of the oldest justifications advanced. It says that God brings painful circumstances to mold our character for our good. Romans 5, 3, and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're given a specific example of the soul-building work of God. 
the Apostle Paul says that he was given a revelation of paradise. He saw things that were too unimaginable to even express in words. He says that a a result of those revelations, a thorn was put in his flesh. Um, And looking at uh, Galatians, um, a reference there, some people think that it might have been an affliction of his eye. Uh, But this thorn, he says, was put in his flesh as a direct result of that revelation in order that he would not become arrogant but rather that he would be content in his weakness, relying on God. Scripture tells Christians to expect suffering to test and mold us. The the turn to God theodicy argues that God uses evil to cause us to contemplate the brevity and emptiness of life apart from God. Tragedy is meant for us to consider spiritual things instead and to turn to him. An example is given in Luke 13 where Jesus is told of some men that were killed while they were sacrificing to God. Luke 13, 1 through 5 says, There were present some at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus uses these tragedies to urge his listeners to repent from sin and escape the just wrath of God to come. The punishment theodicy argues that suffering is a result of God's just punishment of evildoers. As one example, I previously mentioned God's use of of natural evil to bring plagues of great suffering to Egypt. Egypt had enslaved God's people for hundreds of years. In punishment, God aims at the good of displaying his justice, his right judgment against sin. I appreciate uh, the job that that Doug did last week um, during his question in explaining that this series serves little purpose if it's only an academic exercise, we need to be able to respond to questions such as the problem of evil so that we can have assurance ourselves and so we can give hope to others. It is unlikely that any of us will be called to debate the problem of evil, but we will be talking to people who have suffered or who witness great suffering all around them. Scripture has numerous references of people crying out, why God, why this? It was a natural reaction then, and it is now. For example, in Job 3.11, just overwhelmed by all that was happening to him, he cries out, why did I not die at birth? Jeremiah 12.1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Habakkuk 1.1, 
chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly at wrong? Ultimately, even when people aren't given the answer to those questions, they have a peace as they see God more clearly and are content with His goodness and His faithfulness. People asking such questions today need to know God is not only perfect in power and goodness, like we've laid out, but in mercy and in forgiveness. They need the reason for the hope that we have. Because after God's power, His character, His inscrutability, every theodicy we can come up with, after all that is explained, the problem of evil rests on the great scope of heartbreaking suffering, which seemingly has no good purpose at all. I want to read to you, just, just so you can sense the, the, the pain that, um, that, that people deal with. This is philosopher and, and theologian David Bentley Hart after a devastating 2004 tsunami. When confronted by the sheer savage immensity of worldly suffering, when we see the entire literal rim of the Indian Ocean strewn with tens of thousands of corpses, a third of them children's. No Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities, odious means repulsive, banalities, unoriginal, boring ideas, about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's good ends. And I would agree with him that no Christian would be licensed to utter anything if God's word didn't declare it, that his ways were inscrutable, and that he will work all things to serve his good ends. But ultimately, that's what this problem of evil will come down to. Just the magnitude of, of suffering that we see in our world. And in fact, as I was um, researching uh, this question, two case studies are used over and over. I don't know who first suggested them, um, but two case studies uh, come up all the time. Uh, one is... Imagine a, a, a baby deer, it's the Bambi example, um, who is caught in a forest fire and is burned badly and lives several days with pain before finally dying. Or a child who suffers horrible abuse, and then is killed. Those that deny God using the problem of evil will ultimately rest here, that some evil is so horrific 
both in its magnitude and the pointlessness of it. And the victims are so blameless that a God like that described in the Bible cannot exist. Christians have a unique answer to the problem of evil. It is the good news of Jesus. When we can't explain why God brings suffering, how he exercises his power, we need to point people to the goodness of God in Christ. Jesus was not amoral, like the deer example, or presently incapable of anything really bad, like a toddler. Jesus was without sin, completely good and right in every way. His perfection, his holiness entitled him to nothing but endless heavenly praise which he willingly set aside to be born as a man. His crucifixion, by all appearances, was the most unjust and pointless of sufferings. And that suffering, the wrath of God punishing sin, was unlike anything that will ever be experienced. All the evil men involved accomplished their purposes, Judas received silver for betraying his friend. Religious leaders removed the perceived threat to their power. The Roman soldiers got their sadistic entertainment by cruelly mocking Jesus before killing him. The Roman governor kept the peace within his territory by his cowardice. And God accomplished his purpose through it all. Followers who were confused, afraid, grieving, questioning, eventually came to understand the unfolding of God's good purposes, the salvation of their souls. So our answer to the world when the problem of evil is raised is that God's ways are ultimately beyond our comprehension. But this we know. We know that it is not because God does not love us deeply. We know God does not impassively watch suffering from a distance. We know he understands the depth of all suffering because Jesus came and he has experienced it. And through faith in the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God has promised us an eternity with him, separated from all suffering forever. Let's pray. Father, the, the question before us is a hard thing to, to understand and, and to grasp, and, and we don't fully grasp it. I pray that um, you would cause us to rest ultimately in the good news of, of Jesus, that, that we would see your, your goodness, your kindness, and the love that is um, displayed by all that he has done for us. And we would be compelled 
um, to tell others that we would compassionately and gently tell others of the reason that we have the hope that we have in this world that is cruel and, and hard um, and filled with rebellion against you. I pray that um, you would help all of us to know you better through your word and then trust you uh, more in all the things that we don't understand. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.